Hello everyone, Dan here. A quick note from us. We now have an Instagram and Facebook page where you can find more details, information, and behind the scene access on all of our cases. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching at the Tape Room Podcast. Again, at the Tape Room Podcast. It's all one word. All right, now here's the episode. This, they may have seen this as an opportunity to share their story. There also did seem to be a little bit of defensiveness there, and I understand it. If that's not Dillinger, it's going to be, you know, I think a lot of questions are going to be posed to the FBI. On that night in Chicago, July 22, 1934, the one thing everyone can agree on is the temperature. It was hot. One of those sweltering Midwestern nights, humid and heavy. Across the city of Chicago, 23 people died from the heat. But the death that made headlines across the country that night, the one people still talk about today, was the man who had been declared public enemy number one by the FBI, John Dillinger the most notorious gangster of his era, tracked by a team of FBI agents to the Biograph Theater on the north side. He'd eluded police, escaped prisons, robbed banks, terrorized law enforcement throughout the Midwest, and was said to be involved in at least 10 killings. But on this night, they finally caught up with him. A moment that would change the course of history in the U.S., solidifying the stature of the FBI into the powerful federal agency it is today. But, like I said, not everyone agrees on just what happened that night. I'm Dan Bowens, and this is The Tape Room. We're a part of the Fox 5 Podcast Network. Here, we take a look back at infamous or unsolved crimes. On this episode, we're taking a closer look at one of the most infamous criminals and memorable cases in U.S. history. John Dillinger's year-long crime spree changed how law enforcement operated in the United States, all while creating a celebrity status of a criminal unlike anything the American public had seen before. Now, more than 80 years after Dillinger's death, members of his family have filed a lawsuit. They say the man the FBI shot and killed that night in Chicago is not John Dillinger. A legal dispute that could end with the body being exhumed. Our conversation now with author and Chicago Sun-Times reporter John Seidel. Okay, John Seidel, author of the book Second City Sinners, A True Crime from Historic Chicago's Deadly Streets. Thank you for joining us on The Tape Room. Happy to be here. And there's a chapter uh, in that book on John Dillinger, one of the original American gangsters, right? Correct. And you, re- you really can't sort of tell the history of crime in America without spending a good deal of time on Dillinger. No, no. He really, uh, I mean, he kind of wrote the book himself and, and, and really uh, had an effect on 
the way um, on, on law enforcement, I mean, they adapt a lot of methods uh, to deal with him and his band of bank robbers in the 30s. And he was the United States' first public enemy number one. Right, public enemy number one. Um, yeah, during that great gangster era. And here we have it, I mean, almost 85 years later, 85 years after his death, I should say, uh, there is new controversy about his death. Um, and I wanted to get to that uh, in just a second, but let, starting at the beginning, I mean, you, you sort of touched on it. Dillinger's crimes are happening in the 1920s, 1930s. This is the Great Depression, and we're just starting to see the modern sort of organized crime waves figures and some of these uh, sort of notable figures who are, who are coming out there. Can you sort of sort of take me to that time, 1920s, 1930s, this, this emergence of organized crime in America? Well, yeah, sure. I, I mean, and, and with Dillinger uh, specifically, it was really um, um, the early 1930s, actually a, kind of a brief period for him from 1933 to 1934. Of course, uh, in the 20s, we saw the roaring 20s, we saw Prohibition uh, and how organized crime reacted to that. You had the beer barons in Chicago and Al Capone. Uh, but then it all kind of came crashing down in 29, right? And the Great Depression kicked in. Um, and in the midst of that, you had John Dillinger growing up in Indiana. He was born um, in 1903 uh, in Indianapolis, had a little bit of a tumultuous childhood with his uh, mother dying when he was young and his father remarrying. Uh, and they wound up in a town known as Mooresville, Um and when he was pretty young, he um, he got in trouble. The, the, the first uh, big crime that kind of got him in trouble with was uh, when he and a, a local pool shark decided to attack a, a grocer. Um, they, they basically mugged the guy. And, um, you know, the, the, the pool shark, Ed Singleton, uh, he wound up uh, pleading not guilty and got a pretty light prison sentence. But John Dillinger decided to uh, to listen to his father and wound up with a, a sentence of like, you know, like 10 to 20 years in prison. So he got he, he got the big sentence and, and wound up in prison for a long time after pleading guilty. And, yeah, that was interesting that, that uh, his his sort of partner in that in that case, he got just two or three years. Dillinger goes to court, uh, doesn't have, to my understanding, didn't have any representation. And he got I mean, they threw the book at that guy 10 to 20 years in prison. And it's really inside prison where. You know, like a lot of these stories that you hear, I mean, he really learned how to be a criminal um, and met some pretty notorious guys while he was in prison. Yeah, and that's where he kind of, uh, um, the, the, the gang kind of first got together. And, and it's true, and he would even later on kind of make references to the Indiana State Prison almost like a school, you know, a school for criminals. And that's where he, he learned a lot of tricks. And, um, you know, he eventually got out and uh, um, helped bring his buddies from the prison. Uh, meanwhile, he actually got arrested in Ohio, and they had to come out there and, and help uh, bust him out, uh, unfortunately killing a sheriff along the way. Um, and then kind of their crime spree began, and they were, they were kind of all over, um, you know, the Midwest, Indiana in particular, Ohio, um, Robin Banks left and right, and really uh, kind of became legends doing so. And again, this being the Great Depression, um, you know, not everybody saw him as a villain. Some people kind of liked the fact that he was sticking it to the banks. And you sort of touched on it. Um, he escapes prison. He helps another person escape prison. And some of that starts to, his his legend, so to speak, starts to grow. And 
this is an organized group of bank robbers where they're not just sort of going out and picking random banks. I mean, there's a there's a a, a, a real planning here, and and they're when they do these jobs, uh, they they do it in a very professional way, and and that's 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 what gives them a little bit of this notoriety. Yeah, it does, and it's also again going back to how law enforcement had to adapt. I mean, they they kind of realized that the tricks that were involved and and, and how the the bank robbers would go into it. But you're right. <laughs> Excuse me, and I and I'll throw out that you know I actually grew up in Indiana. And there's a local legend. I don't know if there's really anything to it, but people used to talk about how Dillinger wouldn't rob a bank there because there were too many trains in town. Whether or not that's true or not, I don't know. But that kind of speaks to the planning that he's known for, right? They, you know, they they had they they were really good at thinking these things through. I read one article where it said that he and his group would even pretend like they were with a movie crew scouting a location for a film where they were going to rob a bank when really they were just scouting a location where they were going to actually rob the bank. I mean, that was it was sort of detailed planning. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, the escapes uh, as well, you know, using, uh, using uh, citizens there at the bank to help, basically as shields to, to get away when things got tight. And and he, he, he you, you touched on it where there's there's people who in that time didn't weren't against uh, or or saw it I don't know it was like a an envious way of him sticking it to the bank but I mean these were these were bad characters there was violence involved I mean there there's really violent incidents that happened in in the in the course of these crimes when he's when they're robbing these banks yeah and it's and you're right it's important to mention that I, I mean first of all it's, it's, I mean there's a there was the prison break in uh, Lima, Ohio, where the, the sheriff was killed. I mean, that was a pretty, uh, pretty nasty incident in which uh, they, they kind of beat the sheriff unconscious, you know, unconscious unnecessarily, uh, and lost another deputy and uh, the sheriff's wife, I believe, in a cell, and left the sheriff on the ground to die, which was, you know, really unnecessary. And I and I believe Dillinger even expressed some frustration that his pals had done that. But all but then one is. Oh, go ahead. I said all along the the way there are newspapers and some of the early bits of television where they'd play the news in the movie theaters where the, he's getting a lot of publicity during this time. Yeah, and, and you know, that's come up in other talks that I've done with people about Dillinger, about the fact that this this was something where the, the media really built him up. And we had seen examples, especially in Chicago, of that happening uh, before with, with others. But this is, this is the one where... Um, yeah, I mean, he really became a, a star in the media, and his, his picture was everywhere, his name was everywhere. People just wanted to know what Dillinger was up to next. In, in, you, in your book, you write about Al Capone, right? I do. And did Capone and Dillinger ever cross paths along the way? No, I don't believe that they did. In fact, by the, I, I mean, you know, I, you know I, I, I can't prove a negative, but I, I have no reason to think that they ever did. I mean, Capone would have been in, in prison by the time Dillinger was was really doing his thing. And these guys, I mean, they're, they're different characters, but it's a similar story where it's these guys who the, the media and the papers, they wrote about them so much that they sort of took on this larger-than-life kind of figure. Yeah, and they, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, they, 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 it's very similar stories, and, you know, Capone was the same kind of thing. He has this, this reputation as, as being really uh, brutal, uh, and running the mob in Chicago with, with kind of an iron fist. But, but, you know, during, you know, at the height of his popularity, they, you know, there's one story in, in the book that he had to come to the federal courthouse in Chicago and people spotted him outside. And by that time, he was just 
everybody knew his face, and just a mob descended on him. And he had to he had to run away into the building across the street to get away. Yeah, same kind of thing, same kind of celebrity status. Um, for really, were violent criminals. And when this time period, thirty three to thirty four, is really when the Dillinger Gang is very active, and they've killed at some point somewhere around ten people. Several of these violent robberies, banks, uh, you know, pol- the arsenals of per- police and special units who are after them, three jailbreaks, um, and eventually he is picked up. He's arrested in '34, and he's he's transported back to Indiana. Right. And right. that's they, they, yeah. You, go ahead. And that's when there's that famous photo where Dillinger is is in. I don't know where he was. He was in a courtroom or he's in a jail cell or something. But there's all these people there, and he's almost posing with a sheriff's deputy. I mean, like his arm around a sheriff's deputy. Yeah, he's got actually. I think he was a prosecutor. He's got his arm on, his, on the on the Lake County, Indiana prosecutor's shoulder, uh, really looking like they were buddies. And you're right. So so at this point, what happened was, you know, I, I don't believe Dillinger was ever convicted for a murder, but he was on his way to a, a conviction after the, the, the murder of an East Chicago police officer. I believe it was early in 34. And you're right, they picked him up in Arizona, brought him back to Indiana, put him in the, the jail in Crown Point, Indiana, which was supposed to be, and was, was labeled in the press kind of like the best jail in Indiana. They basically built it up as escape proof. Um, which, you know, just kind of seemed to make inevitable what happened next. But, yeah, they, they, when they first got him there, he almost had kind of like a press conference with the, the sheriff and the prosecutor, and, and they let reporters just ask him questions, and that's when he had that, that famous quip about uh, how quickly he could rob a bank. I think he said a minute 40 flat, or, you know, something, something like that. But, uh, you know, you, it's hard to believe. This was a criminal. He was, he was accused of murder. And they're just letting him stand there and answer questions from reporters. But then, just like you said, he escapes. I mean, the legend yeah. is already at a at an astronomical point. But then he escapes prison again, or he escapes escapes custody. I guess he's not in prison again, but he escapes. He escapes again. Yeah, like I said, almost inevitable. And the way he did it, you know, the the, the Chicago Daily News, which uh, their archives were really the the basis of my book. They they had already called him like a bank robber and a murderer. And at this point, they called him, in, in the coverage, they called him Industrious Wood Carver. Because, because, you know, of course, famously, they say he used a little wooden gun that he had whittled to, to break out of the prison. You know, he, he, he confronted the guards there and stuck it in their back or stuck it in their side. And none of them were really interested in taking the time to look and see whether it was an actual real gun. And using that little wooden gun, he supposedly made his way out of the jail I think he took another inmate with him. They grabbed a couple of guns along the way, and they actually wound up uh, jumping into the car that belonged to the sheriff herself and making their way out of Crown Point. Along the way, he supposedly almost stopped to rob another bank, but decided, um, you know, not to press his luck. Um, and, and it was during that escape that he crossed state lines in, into Illinois, which kind of brought federal heat down on him. And that's exactly what I was going to say. And it's funny when you talk about, I mean, it's not funny, but when you talk about those deputies, they probably figured, well, this guy, he's here for killing an, an officer or he's killing a sheriff. I mean, why why even think twice? You know, I said, okay, he, he's, yeah. he's he's notorious and he's notorious for a reason. Um, but, yeah, but, I mean, there's, yeah, go ahead. And, 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 and like you mentioned, he crosses state line. He's probably already very much on the FBI's watch list. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover, sure. FBI, I think was established closer to like 1904, 1905. So it's not like, it's a, it's a relatively new agency, but 
he is their first public enemy number one. And by this point, he is, they've got resources that are, that are on to him and, and after him. Yeah, and, 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 and Hoover wanted him. And, and yeah, so, so that began another series uh, of incidents. And at that, this point, Dillinger has had to kind of put together a new crew, which in, included uh, Babyface Nelson. Uh, you know, one um, uh, standoff that occurred during this time was the incident at Little Bohemia in Wisconsin, where they had kind of taken over a lodge there, and, and the feds tried to ambush them there, and uh, a couple citizens were killed along the way. So was a so was a federal agent, and uh, after, you know, big shootout. Uh, people died. Dillinger gets away again. And uh, so, so yeah, so you've got a couple jailbreaks already. You've got a dead sheriff. You've got you've got the the dead East Chicago police officer. You've got this 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 incredible jailbreak in Indiana. They get away again. I, I mean, the, the the feds are just really really frustrated at this point. And, and this is over the course of like two years. I mean, this isn't like it's spanning a decade. This is this is all happening from you know early 1933 or 30, 33 sometime to 1934. This is all. Happening with yeah, him. no, so it's like a period of 14 months. Yeah, it was more like late 1933 when it got started. I mean, there's so many things Dillinger did and that he's known for, but you're right. It all really happened in a short period of time. That scene, of course, is the, the scene from the, the Johnny Depp, Michael Mann movie, um, Public Enemy Number mm-hmm. One. I mean, that's like one of the, that, that escape from the lodge, that's one of the sort of memorable scenes from that. Um, yeah. And, and after months of sort of after being after him, uh, the special agent in charge from the Chicago office, Melvin Purvis, I believe his name is, who it is who in his own right is is very well known. Um, he he's on to, he's tr- he's the one who's tracking Dillinger. He is, and it's about this point, getting into summer of 1934, that uh, uh, an informant kind of finally comes forward. A, a woman named Anna Sage. She was uh, she was an immigrant. She was considered an undesirable alien, in fact, by the by the federal government, and, um, you know, she she was ready to, to give him up. The one thing that uh, supposedly, according to her story, that she had asked was that she just not be uh, deported by the government uh, if she helps him get Dillinger. And, and later on, her lawyers would, would insist that they almost, the feds almost laughed at the request because it was so easy to grant. You know, of course we can do that for you if you're going to help us get Dillinger. And so um, this is when... You know the, the the moment that really ties Chicago to the Dillinger legend forever uh, comes into play. Of course, so she tells them we're, we're going to go to one of two theaters on this particular night. So the FBI winds up watching them. Of course, they show up at the Biograph, and Dillinger goes in with with Anna and uh, with with another woman, Polly Hamilton, and uh, they've got about two hours to wait while Dillinger and, and uh, and the women watch a movie called uh, Manhattan Melodrama, which is, interestingly enough, about a gangster. It's a gangster flick. And, uh, you know, the Chicago Daily News would write just about how similar, basically the parallels in this movie that Dillinger might have seen in his own life. Uh, I guess it ends with uh, the, the fictional gangster walking into the execution chamber. And uh, then the movie ends, um, and he wanders outside. And the thing is... By at that point, a, a huge crowd of, of federal agents and I believe East Chicago police officers had actually gathered out there to wait for him. And uh, so the story goes: he walks out of the, the lobby with the two women. Uh, he passes Purvis. Purvis, I think, drops his cigars and gives some kind of signal to the men, and they start to follow him. And uh, Dillinger gets just a little bit south of the theater, 
to an alley, and that's when this months of frustration by law enforcement just unloads on John Dillinger, and they gun him down right there in the alley on Chicago's north side. And I, I checked the website. On its website, the FBI says Dillinger's death signaled the beginning of the end of the gangster era. And, um, you know, of course, the nation's fascination with those times and, and, and his life and others sort of continues today. So it was a significant moment for the FBI to take him down. Yeah, you know, it, it really was. And I, I think um, whether they'd like to acknowledge it or not, and, and I think they sort of do, but uh, the Dillinger story and the FBI story really is kind of intertwined because, um, you know, I think the FBI was really able to grow its resources because of, because of the Dillinger story and because they took him down. It was just another example of the, 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 the G, they, they get their man, right? Yeah, so, so it's, uh, it's uh, interesting. I hadn't thought about that to, to look at it that way, which is why over the summer the FBI pushed back so hard on the reason why we're talking about this now because yeah. there are some people who say they're long-lost relatives of John Dillinger who say... That wasn't him who they shot outside the movie theater that night. Yeah, it was really um, a story that came out of nowhere this summer. But it, but it shows kind of the fascination that continues with John Dillinger. So, um, yeah, the news trickled out uh, um, in the middle of the summer that uh, there, was, there were plans to possibly exhume his grave. Uh, and uh, it wasn't immediately clear why. Um, and so, I mean, I was one of the reporters who wound up poking around. I mean, I just, my own personal curiosity, like, well, why are they digging this guy up? And um, that's when we were able to put our hands on an affidavit, actually two uh, identical affidavits. Each came from somebody who uh, claimed to be the nephew and niece of John Dillinger, in which they expressed skepticism about whether or not the body that's in the grave in Indianapolis where Dillinger was supposedly buried they're not sure that it's him, at least according to this aff- these affidavits that they filed, which really, you know, you know, there have been questions, conspiracy theories, whatever, over the decades about whether or not that person who was gunned down outside the biograph is really John Dillinger. But here are two signed affidavits from members of his family saying, we're not sure. Are we sure that those are members? I mean, it, I imagine that there's a level of scrutiny there. Uh, their names are Mike Thompson and Carol Thompson, right? Right. And, uh, you know, I have to say that, um, so first of all, a lot of people, including uh, the family members who signed these affidavits, have, have really kind of kept quiet. There hasn't been much communication, if at all, with the media uh, about what's going on, at, at least from them. Um, but in the months since these have been filed, I've got to say, I haven't seen anybody raise any doubts. And other members of the Dillinger family have been interviewed uh, and no one seems to be questioning whether or not these are legitimate members of the family. I, I'm looking at one affidavit, and um, in the fourth paragraph, this one comes from Carol Thompson. Um, she explains her relationship to Dillinger. She says that her grandfather, John Wilson Dillinger, was Dillinger's father, and her mother was Frances Dillinger Thompson, uh, Dillinger's half-sister and the daughter of John Dillinger and Elizabeth C. Fields Dillinger. Um, I know that's kind of like a lot to follow there, but she does in the affidavit, so does the other affidavit, explain the relationship. And let's say, you know, the name, the name Dillinger, probably from the areas where they're supposed to be from. Um, yes. And, uh, and some of their, they, you know, they say some of the evidence includes 
that on I guess on the autopsy the 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 eye color didn't match the ear shape was didn't protrude from the head correctly there's there's some specific things that they're that they're questioning there yeah they also mention uh, fingerprints not matching uh, an apparent heart condition and the, the anterior teeth not matching which is all it's it's all interesting but you know one thing to kind of throw out there that I think can can feed the theory one way or another if you believe it's Dillinger or if it's not Dillinger, I guess. Uh, you know, supposedly John Dillinger had plastic surgery done, or as, as it was done in the 30s, to kind of change his appearance um, before he was killed outside the biograph. You know, again, going back to the, the old Chicago Daily News clippings that I read as I was researching the book, the, the reporters mentioned that. It, you know, there was one of the odd things about John Dillinger's death was the way that his, his body was taken to the morgue, and they just let crowds of people come in to look at his body. Um, pictures of his body with crowds around it ran in the newspapers. And, uh, and the, the reporters who, who covered this were explaining the fact that, yeah, you can see that he had, had plastic surgery done. The cleft in his chin is gone. There's this, that, and the other thing. But there's no doubting. This was, I remember this quote. There's no doubting that Dillinger was actually Dillinger. This was, I know this was a reporter who had covered him before and knew what he looked like. Um, so, so this was always kind of something that was out there. Of course, you know, that's also a way you can point out, it's like, well, maybe he didn't have plastic surgery. Maybe that wasn't him, right? Yeah. And, um, and, and so exhuming him may be a way to confirm one way or the other, but it's not going to be easy. The History Channel, I guess, is involved in this. Um, but there... It, it looked like maybe this is going to be a, a done deal. It's going to happen by the the end of the fall, the end of autumn, before Christmas. But uh, it, there's a little bit of roadblocks here. It's not it's not it's not set in stone that it's 100 percent going to happen. No, I, I would say there there are there are a couple of things. So so just a, a quick history on this. So they filed uh, that request to uh, exhume him, and it was supposedly set to happen in September. Uh, and then somewhere in between approval and I, I'd say you know early September or so, and, and in the middle of this, all this me- all the media coverage explodes. They're going to dig up Bellinger. Um, somewhere in there, the cemetery kind of starts to get cold feet about what's going on and starts to complain about certain things, including concern that uh, that the media is going to be trampling all over the cemetery. Where, where is the, I'm sorry, where, where is the cemetery, John? I, I, I... It's, it's down in Indianapolis. Oh, okay. Um, and, and, you know, I think there probably is a legitimate concern there. If you're digging up the grave of John Dillinger, uh, you're going to have a hard time keeping cameras away. You know, there's, you know, maybe you can keep them at bay a bit, but uh, certainly the media has shown uh, in the last couple of months, that that we're we're not done being interested in Dillinger. Look, if they and, did um, if they did that, John, I imagine you'd be on one of the first flights out there. I, I would plan on being there as best I could. Yes, absolutely. But I, I certainly wouldn't be the only one. Um, so uh, so what happened was there was the, the family actually wound up filing a lawsuit against the cemetery, generally complaining that hey, we we were going to do this, and now the cemetery's balking about it. And so now you've got litigation. I was actually just looking at the docket before we, we got on this call, and, you know, there, there is apparently a plan for a motion to dismiss. You know, the, the bottom line meaning they're, they're going to be arguing about this in court for the next couple of months about what to do about this. But in the meantime, the family has filed a new request 
and I believe approval has been um, given for a December 31st exhumation. So um, they're, they're trying to do it. And, you know, I think, not really sure how easy it's going to be to dig up a body in, in late December. I, I mean, there's that. And there's also, apparent, you know, apparently it's the, the, to, to, to ward off vandals and grave robbers, uh, I, I guess a lot of concrete and cement was used uh, to kind of encase the tomb and, and, and keep people away. So whatever's there, they're going to have to break through all of that, if that's true. And, John, why do you think that the family wants to do this? Well, I, I, first of all, I, I, from, from, uh, from other reports, I haven't really had the opportunity to talk to any of these relatives, the ones who are not involved. But, but I, I think there's a split. I don't think everyone in the family does want to do this. I think some people want to keep the past in the past uh, and protect Dillinger's legacies, such as it is. But as for the ones who do want to, to know, I, I don't know. Can you blame them? I, I mean, think about it as, as if it were a member of your family. And there are all these theories out there about how, well, it might not have been him. So, okay. So if he wasn't killed outside the biograph, and they talk about this in the update a little bit, then what did happen to him? How long did he live? Did he, did he marry? Did he have children? Um, these, are, these are questions that they express in the affidavit, I think are perfectly natural. I, I think there's just human curiosity. You know, think, think about all the, the uh, companies out there that are thriving on, on um, people researching their family history. Well, this is a family researching their family history, and I don't blame them for, for wanting to, to want to get answers. But their, it's, their relative but it's just because it's Dillinger. Their relative just happens to be John Dillinger. Uh, a famous gangster that, you know, the mention of his name just still, what was it, 80-some years later, just has the media running anytime any time anything has to do with him. And wrapping up for us, uh, John, but the FBI itself has pushed back very hard on this. I mean, they've, they've sent out a string of tweets where they posted some different evidence that they had, some fingerprints. Because for the FBI, as we've talked about, this is a real sense of pride. And if this pivotal moment in the history of the FBI isn't exactly as it seems, that could be problematic. I think it's going to be really interesting for, for many reasons. If they dig up this body and it's shown not to be Dillinger. And you're right, for one thing, for the, for the legend of the FBI. And and yeah, I was, I was actually surprised because this was the Chicago field office of the FBI that sent out these tweets. You know, I cover federal courts in Chicago, so I, have, I, I deal with the FBI in Chicago. This was, I would say, unusual, the, the kind of response that we saw from the Chicago FBI. They're usually pretty quiet about things. They usually don't have much to say. And you're right, over a series of days uh, after this broke, this news of this affidavit, they started sending out uh, tweets about um, about Dillinger. I'm looking at one where they say FBI agents shot and killed the notorious gangster John Dillinger. Um, there's another where they talk about the the, the cult that he had and uh, the, his weapon, and they start talking about fingerprints. There's a they tweeted out a picture of the fingerprint card. They say the fingerprints match. They they say they're convinced that this is him. Now this also may have just been them taking up. They do like to talk about their history online. If you follow their Twitter page, um, they'll talk about on this date or here's an artifact. There is some interest at the FBI in sharing their story that way. And this, they may have seen this as an opportunity to share their story, but there also did seem to be a little bit of defensiveness there. And I understand it. If that's not Dillinger, it's going to be 
you know, I think a lot of questions are going to be posed to the FBI. And because the FBI, no matter what, will say, no matter what his reputation was, John Dillinger wasn't Robin Hood. John Dillinger was a hard criminal who was involved and possibly or, and responsible for multiple murders. Yeah, and a colleague of mine in, in Indiana, I, I think, actually managed to uh, reach a relative of that. You remember uh, I mentioned that he was he was basically supposed to go on trial and, and was likely to face execution for the murder of an East Chicago police officer. Well, this colleague of mine in Indiana uh, did have a chance to talk to his descendants, the descendants of that police officer. And, you know, they're, they weren't happy about all this. This is this is a guy who who killed their relative. I, I mean, we were just talking about families and putting yourself in their position. Uh, that's got to be frustrating for, for the families of the victim to, 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 to Dillinger, 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 uh, and nobody really talking about their ancestors. So, so no, he, he wasn't Robin Hood. I mean, he was never convicted of that murder, but, uh, you know, there, nobody really denies that he was, he was a violent bank robber in the 30s that, that really just didn't care about the law. John Seidel, as we have a siren go by our studio here on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, but John Seidel, author of the book Second City Sinners, True Crime from Historic Chicago's Deadly Streets. Thank you again for joining us here at the Tape Room. This was, we do, we do mostly New York crimes, uh, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, and we always say we do unsolved and infamous, and there's no doubt this is infamous. Appreciate you having me. Glad I could be here. And again, in addition to being an author, John Seidel is a reporter with the Chicago Sun-Times. As you heard him mention there, this case could be before a judge again at the end of the year, meaning we may talk to John again in 2020. The Tape Room is part of the Fox 5 Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dan Bowens. This episode was recorded, edited, and mixed by Matt Onimus. Our executive producers are myself, Matt Onimus, and Ahmad Asgar. Byron Harmon is vice president of Fox 5 News, and Lou Leone is vice president and general manager. And you can always find us on our Facebook or Instagram page. You can search at The Tape Room Podcast, all one word. And if you think you have a case that you believe we should explore, email us at the tape room podcast at foxtv.com stay tuned for the next episode of the tape room <laughs>